Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 13th, 2018, and my guest is Nassim Nicholas Taleb. His latest book is Skin in the Game, Hidden Asymmetries in Everyday Life. This is his eighth Econ Talk episode. Nassim, welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me again. And I'm both excited and slightly embarrassed to say that our topic for, day, for today is Skin in the Game. It's in a way our third episode on the topic. Uh, we did one episode on the paper you wrote with Constantine Sandus that had the title The Skin in the Game Heuristic for Protection Against Tail Events. Then last August of 2017, we did have an EconTalk episode on the book. That we're that you're having uh, that's coming out shortly. You mean uh, on some aspects of the book. some aspects of the book when it was in draft form, and today we're going to talk about a number of topics from the book that we didn't get to, which uh, in fact are central. Which are in fact central. I mean, I don't know how we had that other episode, but we managed it somehow, and I'm sure we're going to get into some other things as well. But our topics for today are. Uh, rationality, broadly defined, decision-making under uncertainty, and uh, I think we're going to get to religion as well. And the notion of survival. And the notion of survival, which is actually, the more I think about it, the more I, and the more I read your work, the more I think of it as being central to uh, the lessons that you have to teach uh, in terms of decision-making under uncertainty and and, uh, skin in the game. So I want to start with uh, two kinds of probability that you talk about. One is ensemble probability, and the second one is time probability. Set this up with an example from the casino that you use in the book. So the uh, most people have the illusion that you can compute probabilities, uh, what we call state space and finance, by looking, say, at returns on the market, what people are making, uh, returns of businesses, and, and that it would apply to you. In fact, if you have the smallest uh, probability of an absorbing barrier, then you're never going to be able to capture that uh, market uh, return or that uh, ensemble return. Explain, so explain, what, but explain what an absorbent barrier is first. Yeah, it's, it's, an absorbent barrier is a point uh, that you reach uh, at, you know, beyond, beyond which you can continue. You stop. So, for example, um, if you uh, die, that's an absorbent barrier. So, for example, most people don't realize that, uh, as Warren Buffett keeps saying, he says, in order to make money, you must first survive. It's not like a, uh, an option. It's a condition. So if you hit once you hit that point, that's you're done. You're you're uh, you're you're finished. So so and let me uh, so and that applies uh, in the financial world, of course, to um, the uh, what we call ruin, financial ruin. But it can be uh, any form of ruin. It can be ecological ruin. It could be personal ruin. It could be a death of a community, whatever it is. So let let's uh, isolate the point with the following thought, thought experiment. Uh, you send a uh, uh, hundred people to a casino, and uh, the casino you don't know the return from casino. It's just like set up by some uh, weird person, and you don't know if the person who set it up is giving you uh, the edge or not. Okay, so you send them each. You give them, you give, give each of the uh, people him or her uh, the, the an allowance, and ask to gamble for 
for an entire day. So if, uh, the, and then you would compute the return, the expected return of the casino per day, you know, by, by uh, you know, what comes back. So if number, uh, uh, person number 27 goes bust, okay, loses everything, okay, will it affect number 28? Not at all. Not at all. Okay, so you can you can still so you probably will have a certain number of people bust in your sample, but you don't mind. You know you count that as zero, and you compute the expected return, and you can figure out if it's a lunatic or a very smart person running the casino. You get the exact return per day of the casino for uh, uh, this gambling strategy. Now, if on the other hand you send this uh, one person, say yourself, you go a hundred days to the casino with the same strategy, and on day number 27, you are bust. Will there be a number 28? There will not. Uh, exactly. So that's the absorbent barrier. So eventually, if you have an absorbent barrier, the, 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 the question is not you know, whether you're going to survive or not. The question is, when are you going to go bust? Because eventually you're going to go bust. So, so your return, your expected return, if you have a strategy that entails ruin is exactly the expected return is uh, I don't depending on how you count it is you're going to lose everything the expected return is uh, you can count it at negative infinity if you're using log or negative 100% uh, whatever it is so any strategy that has ruin will eventually have if you extend time to infinity will have a negative 100% return and, and that's not very well understood because uh, a lot of people uh, engage in strategies that entail ruin, not realizing that eventually you're going to catch up to them. But one thing I learned when I was a trader, the very first lesson from all traders was, listen, take all the risks you want, but make sure you're going to be here tomorrow. The game is about being in the office tomorrow at 7 a.m. because, you know, we start early. So... That, and that was that was that was a game. I mean, you take all the risk you want, and and effectively, uh, the every single surviving uh, person, say, take uh, Ray Dalio, take Warren Buffett, all these people, all they worry about is ruin. They don't worry about reach, all these complicated stuff. And in finance, emerged two paradigms: one, Markowitz, which is entirely academic, not even used by Markowitz himself which is like computing uh, complicated uh, probabilities of what may happen with returns and future returns, very complicated. And then the other one is a very simple one that focuses on two things, what you expect to make adjusted every day and survival. Make sure you you don't go bust. So most traders, almost all traders who have survived use the latter, okay? And uh, every single academic who went to trade, and we counted, I think, in 1998, how many academics went bust after the LTCM. Uh, academics, you mean in finance, not in mathematics. And, and we noticed that it's close to 100%. There's only one person who may have survived in the 1998 uh, collapse when long-term you know, capital management, which effectively was a short-term firm, uh, with uh, you know went uh, went bust, making bets on small probabilities. So let me try to restate this a little bit. I think um, in thinking about the casino, there's a presumption that the casino that the odds are in favor of the casino. You you start off by saying we don't know what, how the casino owner is setting things up, but if you have a long-running casino like 
in Las Vegas today. The, the odds are slightly in favor of the of management. And so one way to say what you just said is you can't have a lifetime strategy of earning money by going to the casino because no, – No, that's not that's not what I'm saying. Actually, it's, what I'm saying is even stronger. I am saying that even if you have the edge – in the presence of a uh, uh, probability of ruin, you will be ruined, even if you had the edge. If you play long enough. If you play long enough. Right. Unless you engage in strategies designed by traders and rediscovered by every single surviving trader, uh, very, sim- uh, very similar to what we would call the, something called the Kelly criterion, which is to play with the house money. In other words... You start betting in a casino. The strategy is as follows. You go with $100, whatever you are, and you bet a dollar. If you lose, you bet less than a dollar. You bet, like, say, 90 cents or whatever. And if you make money, you start betting with the house money. And it's called, you know, playing with a, with a, with a, with a market money or playing with the house money. And so you increase your bet as you're making money, and you reduce your bet as you're losing money. And that strategy is practically the only one that, that allows you to gamble or engage in risky strategies without ruin. And I, it challenges the – another way to think about it is it there's an asymmetry there between wins and losses that one might think of as – I don't, and but many people think of as irrational. But you're uh, saying exactly. it's not irrational, and, and more than that, often we as economists make fun of people who say, well – I was way ahead and I took a big gamble because I wasn't using my own money. I was using the house money. And economists look at that and we laugh and we say, but it's your money. You could have walked away. You could have kept it. And you're saying that, it, that it's actually rational to treat the money you win differently from the money you lose. Exactly. I mean, uh, behavioral economists have something called mental accounting, uh, which which uh, states exactly what you just said, that uh, you know, treating money according to the source is irrational because these are the one-period models. That's how they view the world as one-shot experiment. They don't view the world as repetition, a repetition of bets. So if you look at the world as repetition of bets under condition of survival, then, it, then uh, mental accounting is not only uh, not irrational, but is necessary. Any other, form of, any other strategy would be effectively irrational. So I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to read a long quote from the paper, which I yes. think sums this up really well, and it's shockingly um, provocative, and especially when we think about what is going through people's heads when they're sitting in an experiment that we're trying to generalize from. This is what you say: "Quote the flaw in psychology papers is to believe that the subject doesn't take any other tail risks anywhere outside the experiment, and crucially, will never take any risk at all." The idea, in, the idea in social science of loss aversion has not been thought through properly. It is not measurable the way it has been measured, if it is all measurable. Say you ask a subject how much he would pay to ensure a 1% probability of losing $100. You're trying to figure out how much he's overpaying for risk aversion or something even more foolish, loss aversion. But you cannot possibly ignore all the other financial risks he's taking. If he has a car parked outside that can be scratched, if he has a financial portfolio that can lose money, if he has a bakery that may risk a fine, if he has a child in college who may cost unexpectedly more, if he can be laid off, if he may be unexpectedly ill in the future, all these risks add up, and the attitude of the subject reflects them all. Ruin is indivisible and invariant to the source of randomness that may cause it. End of quote. So that's a very, um, I think, a very deep insight 
into how careful we have to be interpreting uh, what seems to be a very clean experiment, your willingness to pay for insurance, say, of a, of a particular event. Okay, let, let me simplify my, my, uh, my, my methods. Uh, the, the way you approach a problem, say you take an economic uh, um, theory and you wonder if, uh, if it changes if you make things dynamic, not static. You see, like in other words, it's not one shot experiment, but many, many experiments and or many repetition of the same uh, the same risk. And the second one is uh, what I call uh, you perturbate. In other words, you just uh, assume that you may have the wrong model here and there. Uh, so these two tricks effectively uh, cancel out much of the results of behavioral economics. Uh, not the psychology. The psychological experiments are fine, but behavioral economics are trying to uh, uh, make something um, uh, derive rules from from simplified sets. Um, and, and, and let me also add another dimension uh, that, that people miss. Say I ask an economist or a person who studied uh, economics but not well enough, uh, what's the worst case scenario? He or she would answer, "Well, my death." And then, but I would say, "Well." Do you have family? You know, can can something be worse than just your death? And effectively say, oh yeah, yeah, no, my death plus the death of my uh, uh, parents and children, cousins and uh, pets and uh, so on. And says you, you, you continue. You tell them how about the the ruin of your tribe? They say, oh yeah, no, that's worse definitely than 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 that's a set that's uh, worse than the previous one. And then till you hit the environment and and earth, and then what you notice is that. They effectively, intuitively, when they don't, you know, repeat what they've learned at school, they will consider a risk based on both repetition and life uh, expectancy that is reduced by taking that risk. So, for example, if I cross the street, I'm not, you know, I'm just reducing my life expectancy maybe by a second or not even by, by a nanosecond. The expected value. Exactly. The life expectancy I'm reducing it. But if I am taking a risk for something higher than me, namely a, a tribe, the tribe is, is supposed to survive longer than me. And, and of course, humanity is supposed to have an extra few billion years. So you're reducing the, 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 from that the value of that. And, of course, when you talk about ecosystem, uh, you know, would like to be permanent or whatever you can call permanent in billions of years. And you're reducing that by taking some actions. So the, 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 the ranking of the risk based on lifetime, the life expectancy that you're reducing is something that is not in the literature. So, so when we did our precautionary principle, and I had a talk with you about that, yep. our point was that humanity should survive forever. So if you take these small repeated risks that, that, that threaten, okay, humanity or threaten something we call terminal extinction or extinction risk, then, then you are gambling with something much more dangerous. And there is a pyramid of, 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 of ruin risks. My ruin is not the big deal. I reduce my life expectancy. I think I'm, you know, I've listened to your podcasts, extends my life. So maybe I live another 50 years and uh, 50 years is, uh, yeah, I reduce my, my life expectancy by a little bit. It's not a big deal. But if I reduce the life expectancy of something that should survive an extra billion years, that's a big, big, big cost. And effectively, you can phrase that in terms of cost benefit along these lines and obtain results that are vastly different from what is believed by uh, the so-called risk uh, community. You criticize your critics 
of when you talk about the precautionary principle, they respond, but you do cross the street. So even though the expected loss is very small because the odds of being struck by a car are very small, you do cross the street. You do take some risk of ruin. You don't just stay home in your bed. And what's your response to that? Yeah, no, my response is when I, uh, uh, the way uh, to treat these risks is how many times over my life will I cross the street? Okay, several thousand times. Uh, crossing the street uh, reduces your life expectancy by one in 47,000 years. <laughs> so it's not a uh, big deal. Uh, so uh, the, uh, the, the, the crossing the street uh, basically is, is close to zero risk for me because my life expectancy is not infinite. But if you made humanity cross the street, that would be a problem because it would reduce its life expectancy uh, 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 commensurably. So the, the 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 problem of these analysis that people throw around is that they ignore the remain the value from life expectancy of whatever you are threatening. So you give the and the repetition and the repetition. Yeah, but, well, but let me give, let me give you one simple example of how they miss a repetition. Yeah. Uh, the way they treat, and, and I say it in, 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 in that chapter on uh, rational, on, on rationality and on risk on rationality, survival is what matters first, okay? Uh, so, so people have developed uh, instinct, paranoia, paranoia pays off, basically, if we've survived as a species, uh, humans, however you define it, as whatever species we were, we have to have had some paranoia, otherwise we wouldn't be here. Uh, been here after millions of years, so the, the people develop good reasoning. So if you ask a grand, uh, if you ask a psychologist, if, if you narrow the experiment the way they do it, and you say, okay, uh, uh, why shouldn't I smoke a cigarette? And one shot experiment, it makes a lot of sense. The risk is tiny, and the pleasure is is good. Okay, so I should smoke a cigarette. But your grandmother would say, uh, I've never seen someone smoke a cigarette, enjoy it, and not smoke another one. So your grandmother would think in dynamic terms, because that's how we think. We think in dynamic terms, you see. Paranoia, locally, for example, uh, if, if someone points out the risk of uh, some, whatever, uh, 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 terrorism or something, we are, that, that, uh, that apparently we are uh, overestimating. But people don't understand that if you eliminate paranoia, you've eliminated eventually the human race. You have to have that paranoia for anything that entails uh, 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 you know, a massive uh, tail risk, and 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 that's the only way to do it. So and and but I see it, you know, in a reduced form in trading. You see traders; they basically are paranoid about anything that bankrupt them, but they don't care about variation. They don't. They bet. They, they speculate so long as they know they're not going to be, uh, in, uh, you know, uh, to put it this way, instinct. Yeah, you worked out. So, so that's the idea of separating these 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 uh, risks and, and and risk of uh, being wiped out. And what are you wiping out? Are you wiping out the community or wiping up something? And in the process. And talking to my co-author, Sandus, who, uh, you know, does uh, philosophy, of, uh, various philosophy of action, and he does ethics. And uh, we encountered, we solved a paradox that was, remained unsolved, unsolved, and it's as follows. Um, uh, Aristotle, in, in his, Nicom- uh, his ethics, the Nicomachean ethics, has a, um, a, a various statements that courage is the highest virtue, and at the same time, prudence is the highest virtue. Now, and also, there is a belief uh, among the ancients that 
uh, one, you should have all virtues or you have none. So in other words, if you have one virtue, you should have all the others, okay? And also there's another belief that one virtue equates to all the others. There's an equivalence. So whatever. So the, it looks like a paradox. How could you be both valuing courage, you know, and risk-taking, and uh, prudence, which is the, the avoidance of, 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 of some classes of risk? Well, it turns out courage is... Is prudence okay? If you equate, because if I save a, a collection of children from drowning, effectively I have reduced my life expectancy, but increased theirs, which you know is longer and the more numerous children. So we understand that if you take risk for the collective, you are courageous, but also for you, about yourself, but prudent for the collective. So that is how we solve that paradox, um, Constantine and I, and we're gonna probably publish something if we get to it, but but not verbally, we're sort of like we're confident that we solved that paradox. That wasn't seen that way, but if you start doing the things I was talking about, dynamic, in other words, things are repeated, and layering, in other words, things have a higher life expectancy than others, then you can solve a lot of paradoxes. And a lot of the these things that appear to be biases in, um, in uh, the, uh, the literature and, and the economic, not economics, uh, the behavioral uh, economics literature, uh, are not really, uh, well, they're biases maybe, but they're not bad biases, they're necessary biases. You have to be necessarily uh, uh, careful about uh, paranoid about the survival, uh, particularly of something much higher than you. So, one example used in the book, which I which I think brings this home, is the smoking example that you just mentioned. I'm going to just structure it a slightly different way. Uh, a th- hundred people smoking one cigarette a day is rel- might be relatively harmless. One person smoking a hundred cigarettes a day is is not so good, and you can't. As you point out often in the book, scaling is tricky. You can't just say, well, if 100 people smoking one cigarette is, is not so bad, then one person smoking 100 is the same thing. But they're not the same thing. They're not the same. They're not the same. This is an anti-fragile that uh, people are starting to get now, five years, six years later. And as I say, if, if 100 people jump one meter, is not the same um, yeah. risk as one person jumping 100 meters. So, I mean, because you have acceleration. So, and you have accumulation. And, and these things are, uh, uh, in fact, well understood by us psychologically. We are excellent risk managers when we're left on our own. And it's not some psychologist who just read a few books and knows baby mathematics who is going to make us look irrational and uh, try to nudge us into some different behavior. The point is we have survived so much. We have a huge track record. And any statistician would say that something with such a track record has to have some evidence of skills in surviving. I have to, I have to confess that when I worked in a racetrack in Monmouth, New Jersey uh, for a summer, my grandmother did tell me not to place any bets. Uh, she was a wise woman. Uh, I, of course, was a um, – I thought I was a wiser 18-year-old. And I, and since I had promised I wouldn't make any bets, I did keep that promise sort of. I would occasionally well, – actually, once a day, I would split a bet with the woman who worked in the kitchen. I was the Iceman. Uh, and it turned out – we did okay. We didn't go on to that second bet, but I think I think that's what she was worried about, and correctly so. <laughs> she was worried about me losing my summer money, uh, my summer's earnings through uh, addictive behavior. And I think it's a very interesting challenge to think about life as one-shot deals versus longer-term dynamics. Um, you know, one more cookie is always harmless, but 
when it's 10, because you've had nine before, it's not so harmless. So it's hard to, it's hard to keep that in mind. It's a good thing to think about. Uh, yeah, thanks. Uh, let me make a confession uh, about gambling. I've been uh, a, a trader for so many years, and I have such an allergy for gambling. I've never gambled. Hmm. Every year I go to Las Vegas uh, for a uh, seminar or a conference where you drink, you eat, you do a lot of things. But the gambling table, I can't even concentrate on the table. I mean, I try to watch again. I can't concentrate. There's something about it that's so um, contrived that you really have to have a certain mindset to gamble that's not that of a trader. A trader doesn't like uh, constrained rules, you see. And I, I know very few traders who gamble. Some of them play bridge. Uh, some play poker, which is slightly different, more dynamic. But but gambling uh, is not something that attracts traders. There's something, and plus there's something horrifying about about uh, some uh, about uh, entering um, a trade knowing you're losing. <laughs> you see? Well, I, I think I think there's an opportunity here. Someone out there listening should should fund or create the documentary um, Asim Taleb at the Mirage. Uh, they would follow you through the casino. We would allow you to expound on the things you've been talking about in the first few minutes of this conversation. Uh, I think it'd be, I see it as sort of a stop action claymation kind of thing. I think it'd be awesome. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I want to ask you a question about uh, – well, I, first I want to get – let's talk about religion. Um, yes. Now, a lot of people, it's very fashionable. Uh, that's, 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 a, that's a disrespectful word. I'm going to re- rephrase that. A, a lot of smart people are very critical of religion these days. And one of the things uh, that you hear is that religion is irrational. There's no evidence for it. Uh, it's a it's a superstition that that was comforting to people before we had the Enlightenment. And you argue in the book that that religion that that's not the right way to think about the rationality of religion and the fact that that certain religions have survived for a long time uh, shows that they are quote rational. And your definition of rationality in that context is the same as you've been using in this gambling context, which is it leads to survival. It, it promotes survival. So exactly. talk, talk what, what, about what religion. I, yeah, what, what, what comment I would make is that it's not the religion that survives. It's people who have it who survive. So whatever beliefs these people have that allow them to survive, you cannot be discounted, uh, you know, at, at you know, they're by looking at their cosmetic um, expression. So uh, let, let me, uh, um, so religion, uh, few things we got to talk about. Uh, let's make sure that we don't equate all religions because some religions are religions, some re- other religions are not. Some are more literal, uh, others are more, uh, uh, let's say it, uh, semi-literal or, or definitely or metaphorical. But one thing about uh, belief, okay, and, and, and that's the core of rationality. If you... Um, and this came to me from meeting, uh, finally, Ken Binmore, who really probably did more fundamental work, foundational work on rationality than anyone else. And Ken Binmore effectively says that all these attacks on, uh, or the, 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 you know, economics, economic decision-making based on, uh, you know, by arguing about irrationality, misdefined rationality, you see. And, and for example, uh, the, 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 the conventional economics don't define you as a, uh, uh, the, the economic gains as accounting is just a book entry. There are other things. Like if you, for example, give your money to the poor, there's nothing irrational about it, you see. if So uh, there, there's some uh, restrictions of coherence. So 
so I, I thought of what he was saying and, and how people define rationality and then went back to how people express what they call rational and notice it is usually an ex ante, hence non-empirical definition of rationality. Ex ante means, uh, you know, I define an action as being rational, um, you know, in, uh, means uh, that you know everything that's going to go on around that, uh, that, uh, that action. In other words, that your model represents the world. And we've known since Simon bounded rationality that, that effectively you'll never be able to build a model that can understand the world. So when I say an action is irrational ex ante beforehand, um, I'd better have a track record of that action because we need to see if, 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 um, if because there are things that are not included in that model. So for example, if I say that it is uh, irrational uh, to uh, prefer A to B, uh, B to C, but not C to A, I'd better have a, a, a good model that this holds in the real world. That's called the transitivity condition. And, and I have argued in Antifragile that if you expand the model to saying that for an individual, uh, it may make sense uh, to be uh, coherent, but uh, but collectively we cannot uh, operate with coherent individuals because you deplete resources. For example, if you always prefer uh, tuna to steaks, uh, you you the, the and. Uh, the, you would deplete the tuna supply, and and uh, so therefore you need to cycle, and and nature makes you randomly uh, change uh, preferences, and that's a great way for things to survive. So, for example, these are the modifications to the narrowly defined, uh, what I call baby models, um, that that you encounter in behavioral economics or in in, uh, in decision making, uh, uh, you know, and all these uh, decisions, uh, so-called decision sciences, what are called decision pseudosciences, is is these reduce it and then they find it. Irrational, or for example, if, if uh, in, in intertemporal preferences, if someone offers you an apple today versus two apples tomorrow, uh, well, well, you know, in, in an ecological framework, you may say, well, what if he's the person is full of baloney? Okay, uh, I'll take the apple now. Okay, I'm not taking it now because I prefer to eat an apple now. I'm taking it now because uh, he may disappear. He may not come back tomorrow. He may die tomorrow. Okay, yeah. if you include these models, then a lot of these hyperbolic discounting models, all these models become much more uh, coherent. So, uh, but let me so let me say something now about religion. Okay, so if I judge religion without its track record, I'm going to get into uh, a lot of. Um, a lot of uh, uh, theoretical, I'm not just saying empirical, theoretical uh, uh, mistakes. Because if you think of what was, what's, you know, what would have happened if you, you know, if we didn't have these religions, I think that uh, a lot of people would ha haven't had uh, the, the, the right uh, uh, decisions. Uh, so religion allows you intergenerationally to convey uh, some kind of behavior, okay? Now, if you have to give the story with a religion to justify that behavior, well, that's, that's, uh, that's it. I mean, who, who cares? So, and, and the example I used in the beginning is even in science, we don't have a perception. When I look at the Greek columns, you see, there is a distortion for aesthetic reasons. Okay, uh, the religion may be a, a distorted view, a way for us to view the world that has allowed us to survive. So I give a lot of examples of how to judge uh, religion. You should judge it ex post, not ex ante. And, and I take, for example, something that seems for uh, uh, non-religious uh, Jews uh, uh, not, uh, you know, uh, 
rational, which is to have uh, 500 and some dietary laws and, uh, and and two sinks in your kitchen. Now, when you think about it, well, you, you know, you, you, it's the wrong way to just judge that on, uh, you know, on the basis of rationality. You, the way you got to uh, see it is as follows. What if Jews didn't have these dietary laws? What would have happened? Well, you know that those who eat together band together. So they would be more dispersed, therefore much more vulnerable. And and so they owe their survival to the dietary laws. So this if, you take, if you take that view, and so a, a variant on that is that uh, eating pork is or shellfish is bad for your health in times when there's not good refrigeration and et cetera. <laughs> If that's your, if you if you take that anthropological perspective, you, there certainly isn't a case, rather than say a, a holy or divine one. There's no case for for people to keep kosher today. If that's your view, right? No, I I, I really don't. Uh, I, I, we don't quite. We have to start from the basis that we don't fully understand the world. And rules that have survived a long time, a long time may have logic that we haven't detected yet. You see, the idea that people say, well, not eating shrimp is because uh, they're impure, maybe because they're impure, or maybe because uh, it's good to have dietary laws. Maybe it disciplines you elsewhere. Uh, I don't buy quite the, the idea of pork being insalubrious, uh, therefore Semitic religions, except for Christianity, um, uh, refuse pork. The, the, the idea, uh, to me, is probably deeper, because the Greeks, uh, also living in the same environment, the Cypriots and, and the Egyptians, initially uh, didn't have these dietary laws. The, the, the North Africans also didn't have these dietary laws, and came later. So, I don't believe that you can. Um, we should give a lot of reasons uh, for, for these. Uh, you know, that they should go back and say, "Oh, they've detected the Asubari thing." As necessarily the reason, it's a possible one, but you can never test it. What we know is that these religions have helped in survival, and whatever is related to survival is essential because there's a past dependence. To do science, you must first survive. So I, I want to um, – do you want to say anything else about religion? I'm not I'm – not, uh, yes, um, because I have a few I have, other – I want to switch gears in a minute. But if, do, you, do you want to add anything else? I mean I yes, – listeners, listeners know that I, that I keep Jewish law. There's certainly parts of Jewish law that are not easy to accept. Um, or to, uh, to to view as rational, but as you say, I look, I take the whole picture. Okay, uh, I don't uh, choose one by one, and and the outcome for me has been very good. It doesn't mean I don't mean the sense out very good that I have a good, I'm rich or I'm you know healthy or whatever. I, I, I find the practice of my religion deeply satisfying, uh, and I and I'm and I'm Talebian enough to say I can't then take one plank out of the boat and say, well, this one doesn't make sense. I accept the whole thing with all of its flaws, and the outcome ex post is is good for me. Uh, yeah, you notice one. Th- you will notice one thing that religions come as a package, and you cannot pick and select. Otherwise, it's not like political parties. You can be on the left uh, with this uh, with respect to uh, abortion, but on the right with respect to uh, economic. It doesn't come that way. Religion comes as a simple block. You take it all or or leave it all. Yeah, you're either in the club. <laughs> Or you're not, oh, now, there are different clubs with different rules, so you can yeah, choose course, to course, that extent. But. Uh, but even then, you know, but, okay, but one thing uh, that's uh, uh, misunderstood is, is I started looking, at, I've been for a long time, for about 20-some years, uh, uh, you know, looking at uh, religion, mostly because I'm interested in Semitic languages and Semitic beliefs, not so much initially in theology. Um, and I've noticed uh, that well, people call religion, they're very confused about what they call religion. 
And and the, the following will try to explain to us the main difference between atheism and secularism. Why we should you know focus on secularism, not atheism. So the the when when uh, religion in uh, uh, you, you notice uh, for the Jews was initially law, yeah, so it was a legal system. So, but it was tribal initially, and then later on, of course, expanded. For the Arabs, for the Muslims, religion was law. And, and actually, the word deen in Arabic is uh, a law. You, if you use Aramaic, you use nomus for law, not uh, deen, religion. But deen in, in Arabic means law. And Medina is a place where law prevails. And actually, the name of the state of Israel is Medinat, and <laughs> in Arabic city is Medina. So the, the, so you realize that deen means law. Bet deen is the courthouse, and, and, and you're taking law. That's basically it. It's a unified body of law that you prescribe to. That's religion. That was religion. Now came Christianity. Christianity is fundamentally a secular religion because from the Christ himself, okay, was, was uh, you know, uh, didn't really want to have riot against Romans. It was, he said, give Caesar what belongs to Caesar. So it was not like, take let's take over and uh, Caesar, okay? So the idea, of course, Christianity, of course, evolved uh, here and there into uh, theocracies, but 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 it could not fundamentally accommodate the notion of being uh, a, a law. Okay, why? Well, very simply, it developed, and it was absorbed by the Roman Empire. It developed within a system in which law was a Roman law, and and I, I know the subject quite well as I was interested in the School of Law in Be- of Beirut, which was effectively where, where uh, was was where law was made. And then you can see how the documents, there were some pagan uh, scholars, were, uh, became, when, when Theodosius be, made his code, the, 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 the main code for the, Byzantine, for the Roman Empire, and later on, the, the Theodosius code, all they took is pagan Roman law and added the blessing, a couple of pages of blessing in the beginning. Hmm. So it was not Sharia. sharia. And you notice that so that that so Christianity was separation between church and state from the beginning, and that separation is what allowed the modern world world to develop, and and the secular the, the secular uh, approach. And the second thing I, I mention in, in the book is that when you look at the behavior of the people, you should, you should not look at what people say, but how they behave. You notice that, uh, and, and as that chapter is, is, is called, is a Pope atheist. If you look at the behavior of anyone, uh, any um, and, and anyone within you know these branches of Christianity, of course you got to exclude the fringe ones like Scientology and all of that. You will notice that when facing big decision, they act the same way as a, an atheist. Someone like, for example, the Pope and Richard Dawkins would go to the same hospital to get the same treatment. The difference is they would wrap it up differently. And then you notice also how people, uh, atheists, go to a concert where they're silent and meditative and, and the Christians, uh, you know, go to the mass where they are also doing the same thing. And effectively, sometimes listening to the same music. So the, the idea is you get when the skin in the game, the entire concept of skin in the game is look at what people do, what, not what people say. So that's what I have to say about religion. But I didn't understand that parallel precisely. At least I didn't understand what your takeaway. I understand my takeaway. My takeaway comes from David Foster Wallace, who says everyone worships. 
uh, we all have an urge to be part of something bigger than ourselves, and some people express that through their religion. Some people express it through a concert. Some people express it through a sports team. Some people express it through a political party, a, a political movement. Yeah, but- and and those that sense of belonging, that tribal sense of belonging, is a very powerful part of who we are. So when I think about your point about, I, I'm going to expand on what you what you said in the book rather than what you said just now. When the Pope goes to the hospital. There's a lot of well-wishers and prayers and, and, and believers who, who hope to get some kind of divine response, but he also goes to the hospital. He doesn't just rely on the prayer. And similarly, when Richard Dawkins goes to the hospital, he also goes to the hospital first. He also has well-wishers. They don't think they're bringing divine intervention, but they're hoping that he turns out all right. And there's some sort of a community response among people who like his work, just like there are people who like the Pope. What's the point of those parallels, and what's that have to do with skin in the game? Okay, it has to do uh, with the following. The whole idea of skin in the game, as outlined in the prologue, is I don't really care what people think. I care what the, about what they do. You see, it's about action, not uh, you know what, what comes behind as ornaments, thought as ornament. I consider thought as just pure background furniture and uh, that may lead you to a certain action and that's skin in the game the skin in the game is to make to establish a difference and the problems a lot of the pathologies that we have in the modern world come from the fact that uh, we forget that almost everything that was developed and came from skin in the game not from thinking and sometimes you can find thinking as justification like we didn't develop the steam engine by looking at uh, at uh, the previous work with the Greeks had one model of the, no, it came from developing it with our hands. So in other words, that we live in a world that is uh, very easy to capture by doing, but not easy to capture by thinking. And thinking to me is, I, develop, I mean, I, of course, I put it in, I put it in its proper context. Now, let so me are, but, are you say, yes, go ahead. but are you saying that the Pope talks like a religious person, but he acts like an atheist because he doesn't just rely on prayer. He actually goes to a doctor. Exactly. I watch people doing things, uh, how they would act in, in circumstances. And, and I noticed that the difference in between a secular Christian and a, uh, a secular Christian, in other words, a, uh, someone who is uh, uh, a Catholic or an Orthodox person and an atheist would be the same, facing uh, some actions. So therefore, I, I, I don't see the point of atheism, you know, because of that. I don't see that. Explain. Okay. In other words, it would... Let's not focus on what people think, focus on what they do. And if you judge people, the Martian observes the behavior of atheists and secular Christians, he would observe the same behavior when it comes to things that matter. And so you're saying that, are you suggesting that the Pope is a hypocrite for going to the no, hospital? No, not, not at all. That we have, um, we... Uh, and are the atheists hypocrites for going to the concert because no, they're also no, religious... No, that, that the different the, 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 that the idea of atheism, atheism assumes that religion is literal and the religion is about uh, about the criticism of of, of uh, religion by atheists and and the the the, the uh, promotion of atheism assumes that the behavior of, of, of it's the thought that matters, not the behavior. And the behavior of Christians is pretty much the one that atheists would like people oh, to have. Okay. You see, that was my point. But there's okay. another thing about religion that I'm going to say here, is that religion historically was a muskin in the game. So uh, the gods uh, did not like cheap talk. 
So they liked, uh, you know, they like you to, you know, do something. So you had to offer sacrifices, and and it was a, a great model in the past because uh, <laughs> it forced you into sacrifices. And and there's something that stayed with us that talks cheap from that and in behavior. Another thing I'm going to say about religion is I thought I, I, I thought for a long time why the Christian religion insisted on the Christ being uh, uh, both man and God. And the fact is, he had skin in the game by being man, and people respect those with skin in the game. Had he been God, he wouldn't have suffered. And and uh, and I noticed uh, for the, that a lot of people who have scars effectively are, you know, exhibiting their skin in the game. They're not empty bureaucrats or something like what I call an empty suit in a book. And you would have been an empty suit if you if you're not harmed by anything. And and I observed how uh, Trump owes most of his uh, appeal or owed during the uh, Republican primary when he was standing next to people and he looked real because he lost money because his his adversaries were saying oh he lost so much money it made him real it's much better than someone who lives in cyberspace just writing memos you see and 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 the American public uh, understood that something that the intellectual didn't get that. America is not about talking, it's about doing, and losing money is is a evidence that, that you uh, are in a doing business, not in a talking business. Yeah, well, the, the claim is in Silicon Valley that, I don't know if it's still true, but it used to be the claim that uh, if, you, if you'd gone bankrupt, if you'd had a startup that failed, or even better, a couple, that maybe it was easier to raise money because then you'd at least shown that you'd, you'd had those scars – Exactly. You were carrying those around with you. You learn something, and then in theory, now you could go off and be successful. Of course, it doesn't necessarily follow, but uh, but you know, but that I mean, warriors uh, uh, try to show off their scars, and and these scars, I mean, uh, visibly uh, are sign of. Uh, I mean, people don't interpret these as sign of incompetence. Oh, look, you know, he has scars. He's not good. He's not a good warrior like the other person who escaped. No, he scars means that you're in business. And, 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 and that makes people, uh, that creates an appeal. So the suffering of the Christ of Christ are part of that. So I have these things on theology that are sort of counterintuitive, and, uh, but, but that, that allowed me to engage in a few discussions with uh, people into these things, into theology. I like the line you have in the, in the book uh, from the, the Spartan mother. The mother of in Sparta who says to her son, "Come back with your shield or on it." Uh, I think that's an incredibly powerful way to think about skin in the game, right? Don't if you said you know you can, if you run away, you can run faster without your shield. Your mom doesn't want you see, at home without your shield. Exactly, yeah, but society's put a huge premium on individual courage, particularly when it came courage not to gamble in the casino or throw yourself off a cliff, but courage in order to to help others in battle and protecting something larger than you. I I want to talk about the modern challenge that Skin in the Game faces that I don't think we've talked about before, which came up to me as I was reading the book now for the second time. You give the example of of, uh, Hammurabi's code where a builder, if the house collapses, that the builder built, the house, the the builder is, is put to death, I think. Is that right? Yeah, yes. In other words, it prevents the builder from having hidden risks in the foundations. Right, because the builder knows more than than the buyer. There's this asymmetry of knowledge. And so to prevent the builder from taking advantage of that, cutting corners and making a flawed building, uh, and if I remember correctly, maybe I'm wrong, but 
the building collapsing, killing somebody. It doesn't yeah, exactly. And, 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 and also there's a symmetry. If it kills the firstborn son of the owner, the firstborn son of the architect is put to death. So in our modern world, I would yes. argue, we've moved uh, increasingly away from skin in the game. Uh, the welfare state is an example of it. Yeah, the corporate of bailouts that we have are examples of it. We don't like – a lot of us are uncomfortable with this idea of skin in the game. And when I – given how appealing it is to you and somewhat to me, I'm thinking, well, so why is that? And one answer is, of course, that it's not – buildings don't just collapse because you cut corners. They collapse because bad luck or hurricane. A lot of things happen outside the the control of the of the architect or the builder. The idea of, of executing him for something that isn't his fault doesn't sit so well with us. So we love do-overs. We love giving people a second chance. We love uh, extra credit homework to get, bring your grade up and all these things. And, of course, this encourages people to act imprudently. Uh, it has all kinds of costs, but the yes. other side is also somewhat unpleasant to people. You no, know, but, I mean, the, the, the medicine and, and I, in, in the, I think, the second chapter, uh, first or second chapter, I discuss the case of medicine. If you were going to, if the medicine, if the doctor amputates the wrong leg, you have to amputate uh, one of the doctor's legs. No, because we start looking at things statistically. And, and we have looked at medical performance by doctors or a risk, uh, you know, caused by doctors uh, statistically. I mean, you can do it once, that's fine. If you do it twice, uh, maybe a third time where you're going to be in trouble you see so um, the, uh, the the idea of the architect killing one person uh, maybe uh, definitely needs to be penalized but l let's go back to a central idea that, that you have detected very few economists have detected uh, and again, in the history of literature, in the literature of, of economics we can only find two or three papers on the subject and it is as follows uh, the um, most of economics is perceived to be uh, incentives and disincentives. So, skin in the game would be to incentivize people if they do well, and also disincentivize them. But that's not it. No, skin in the game for me is about filtering. It's evolution. <laughs> you cannot have evolution if you don't have skin in the game. In other words, you're filtering people out of the system. And I give the example of bad drivers. Now, why is it that on a highway, when I drive on a highway, you don't, I, I don't, I rarely encounter people who are, uh, you know, go uh, tapioca and and then uh, crazily kill thirty people. Why doesn't it happen? Well, it doesn't happen because bad drivers kill themselves. Partly because they kill themselves, and also partly because okay, we catch them, we take away, the, we filter them out of the system by taking away their. Uh, the driver's license, uh, and, and we're good at uh, doing that for those who have survived. So the the so the uh, this is filtering. Filtering is necessary for the functioning of nature. Necessary for functioning of anything, and that's called evolution. Now, a restaurants. If you allow bad restaurants to survive, soon be you know you you'd be eating the cafeteria food and immortal cafeterias because basically university uh, cafeterias are immortal uh, I see see them like state uh, you know institutions so the whereas you have the pressure and New York you have great food I get my squid ink in places because they're mortal okay so that's filtering now 
at that point of skin of the game, uh, you pointed out a paper uh, to me, and, and and I found another couple. And uh, that economics is about uh, that that if you put uh, evolutionary filters, you get the same behavior as if people were rational. Um, would you like to comment on that? Yeah. So I want to back up a little bit because when we did this interview last August on this uh, related. This topic came up, and, and you said skin in the game is a disincentive. And I said, yeah, it's not just you get rewarded if you do well, but you get punished if you do badly. And I totally misunderstood your point. Your point is that you don't have to be, quote, rational as an individual. The normal idea of skin in the game – so let me, let me try to restate it the way I think of it as an economist. The normal idea of skin in the game is what economists call incentives. So if I know I can get rich, I'm going to try really hard. If I know I can lose all my money, I'm going to be cautious. And your point is that even if you're not aware of those incentives, even if you ignore those incentives, people who are who who are wise and make good investments are going to be around because they don't hit that absorbing barrier. And people who make bad investments are going to be wiped out and be taken out of the pool. And that is a very different level of rationality. You might call it meta-rationality or yeah, systemic. Exactly. Collective, collective. Collective rationality, rationality systemic yeah. rationality. Yeah. One and, comment here, one footnote on rationality for continue that yeah. we said before is that uh, the other problem that I have in uh, my chapter on minority rule or collective behavior versus individual behavior is that you can easily have you can easily have what you define as irrational people Okay. Rational or irrational? Irrational people. You can okay. define irrationality the way you want, and collect, the collective may behave in how you may define as rational. So, so collective behavior doesn't flow from some a naive, um, you know, arithmetic sum of, of individual behavior because of uh, fundamental asymmetries built into it. So that's, that Vernon, that's Vernon Smith's point, right? Vernon Smith, who got yeah, yeah, the, of course, of course, of course. Who uh, got, Vernon Smith, yes, go ahead. Who got the Nobel Prize with at the same time as Kahneman? Kahneman was saying people do all these irrational things, and Vernon Smith's point was, sure they do, but the market encourages as. Through the, partly through this filter of, of what we might call profit and loss or survival and, and thriving, the market uh, is going to be rational because it's going to punish people, even if they're not paying attention. If they're not paying attention, they're going to be punished. <laughs> it doesn't matter that they have to notice. If eventually, well, actually, gonna... yeah, I have another argument, which is uh, I brought in the book that the market is not driven by the arithmetic sum of participants, but but the most. Uh, motivated uh, buyers as a minority rule, which we discussed last time. And if you look at it based on minority rule, then you realize that, that you can't really study the behavior of individuals and get any inference about the behavior of the market. So that's one thing about rationality. And, and, and I've seen even beyond the market, when you say about humanity, humans being having, if the humans collectively, each one has, makes a mistake of, say, for example, um, uh, be having uh, intransitive preferences. Uh, you prefer uh, apple to oranges, oranges to pears, but pears to apple, um, whether sequentially or stuff like that, collectively, it doesn't mean that the whole world will be, have this the thing wash out so beautifully in, 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 in aggregation. And, and that, but that, that's quite central beyond markets because when we look at societies versus individuals, when we look at uh, selfish gene versus uh, other forms, more collective uh, form of, uh, you know, uh, 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 
preference. I mean, behavior. So, so, so you have you have, um, and mathematically, uh, you can see that very clearly if you do the mathematics, and that's what. Um, uh, what I regret, I mean, regret uh, the, the problem with all these cons- all these, all these uh, uh, nudging consequences taken by economists make no sense uh, when you look at collective versus individual. And the paper I sent you that you referenced is a paper Gary Becker wrote a long time ago, I think in the 1962, I can't remember the year. But uh, and, and Gary's gone, alas. But he wrote a paper that I thought was kind of a silly paper as a graduate student. Not that I could think anything of Gary Becker's is silly, but I never understood it. Which was that even if people don't make rash, even if people aren't utility maximizers, when prices change, when prices go up, they're more likely to buy less of something simply because the domain which they can choose from has gotten smaller. And the example he gives is that let's assume people choose randomly. There's no rationality. Uh, they're not maximizing anything. They just choose randomly. And he shows that if people just choose randomly, they're more likely to choose less of something when its price goes up and more of something when its price goes down. And he used that as a justification for demand curves uh, despite the fact that you might not find utility maximization uh, very palatable. And uh, that's part of what you're saying. You're saying that – Individuals could be erratic, <laughs> but the system is going to purge people who make bad decisions and and enhance the survival of people who make happen perhaps by random choice yeah, good I mean, decisions. Shia, Shia and did uh, something uh, on zero intelligence agents, and and when he he called. Uh, uh, it was it was uh, it was like a big revelation at the time. A wonderful idea is as follows: you have you can have zero intelligence players and a very intelligent uh, market. Yeah, it's crazy. Let's talk for a minute about inequality. Uh, you make the point in the book, which reminds me a little bit of the points we talked earlier about probability over time versus at a point in time. You talk you argue in the book that. That the way people are looking at inequality is wrong, that they should look at lifetime incomes. And if they do that, they'll see that people move in and out of different classes of income over the course of their lifetime and that therefore there's no such thing as the rich or the middle class. Is that an accurate way to describe what you're saying? Yes, exactly. I mean, the the problem of looking at the measures of inequality we have are effectively ensemble inequality. In other words, you take the... uh, uh, all Americans and 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 look at uh, the how much the winner controls and and so on. And so you say the top one percent has fifty uh, percent of the wealth and things like that. Let's have a revolution and let's tax them. But what people don't get is and I'm sure statistics that ten percent of Americans will spend one year in the top one percent, something like that. About half of Americans will spend one year in the top ten percent. And the way to um, Analyzing inequality is not uh, is exactly like the same as uh, the dynamic probability of ruin. You got to look at it over time. Is your li- over your lifetime? Of course, you're going to spend years not making money. You're going to be at the bottom, and uh, you're going to spend years making have to some time spend some time making a lot of money. So the way you look at the health of a country isn't in uh, so much in in the opportunity to uh, rise. Okay, or the opportunity to be, or or, or the number of uh, people who are middle class, is in the probability of losing your status of top dog. You see, and and nobody, uh, I mean, very few people look at it that way. For example, take the Forbes 500 of 1985 versus 2015. You'd be shocked. 
30 years later, uh, a very small proportion, like something like 10 something percent of families were both. You see, the, so we have a, a, a you have an engine in America to destroy the very strong. Although it creates inequality, it does also create opportunity. And opportunity is not, I mean, the, 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 if someone rises, someone at the top has to fall, and it's easy to fall in America. Take France, and you get shockingly depressing results. That effectively, uh, the the you know some people stay in the same class all their lives. You know, the upper middle class of civil servants. Or friends of the state, civil servants, or has this companies related to the states. Once you did the, uh, you know, you study at certain universities, you're done for life. You have that effect in America, but those who rise are usually those who come from out of nowhere. And if you take Florence, and you notice that, uh, you know, places, you know, the the, the wealth in medieval uh, times was uh, in the same families as the wealth is found today. Okay, uh, largely. So, so people discuss mobility uh, naively, and and I so I just proposed a measure of inequality based on uh, transition probabilities. It's a completely different approach, and it, it will give you much rosier image of America. Now, another interesting thing that comes with America, the health of companies, the same applies to corporations. In America today, uh, the corporations tend to stay 12 years on average uh, in the S&P 500. And that's very good news. It is very good news. Okay, uh, Look in Europe what happens when companies becoming cozy with the state uh, manage to uh, stick around, you see? So the the it's the same thing. We got to look at the same thing uh, from a standpoint of inequality. So and plus, there are other metrics and in inequality, very technical and measurements of uh, genies and stuff that that are not right. In other words, people give you the illusion that these have been growing over time when they be it may be just the wrong computation. Yeah, well, I like to point out that if you go back to say 1985, some of the people in the top one percent weren't even born. Uh, today, in the top one percent today, weren't even born. Certainly, by ni- in 1970 or 1975. But having said that, and no, no, I, but they're talking about families, families, also. right? And their families and, were, in were, not, France, were not wealthy. Families. Were not wealthy. Sixty yeah, percent is dominated by families. So, I, yeah. I'm sympathetic to your point. As listeners will know, I'm very. I think it's very important to remember that people can move in and out of of different levels of income. But I do think. Uh, being financially well off myself, uh, I think my children have a lot of advantages that other children don't have, and it's not just genetic. Some of it's genetic. You know, my kids have pretty good genes, I think, but they also have certain opportunities, connections I've made, things I've been able to teach them that are going to make it more likely that they do not fall into the say bottom half of the income distribution, and people in the bottom half are going to struggle to get into the top half because they don't have some of the advantages. That my children have, and people have gone so far with this to say it's it's immoral. I'm going to just go to an extreme here. It's immoral to read to your kids before they go to bed uh, because it gives them an edge, a leg up on the competition. I that that repulses okay. me. Yeah. Uh, that repulses me. But but I do accept the point that there is some. Uh, uh, it's a much smaller chance for my children to get into subsist to fall into subsistence poverty, say, than somebody in the bottom half of the income distribution. They they start far from it, and they have certain advantages that keep them from it. So I I, I think there 
there are some issues there. I do think the most important thing to keep in mind is I think that people want to get ahead. They don't necessarily want to get ahead of others. And I think we should always discourage the natural human urge to get ahead of others rather than just ahead. But uh, th- there is some, there are some challenges, I think, in the American system today that make it harder for people to be, to be upwardly mobile that, that I think are bad. Um, you will encounter a problem that I didn't put in a book, but but I may in the future uh, or may in some um, other uh, uh, book or writing, is, uh, which is that uh, what you consider is a unit. So the remedy for that is if my if if I cannot transmit my wealth to my children, what's my motivation? Why do I have to work? Well, I'm working to give them a better future. So the efforts, now, now where is the unit? If you consider, and that's modern, modernity, that an individual is a unit, then, of course, it's unfair because my children are going to get more money than others. But if I consider that the unit is my family and my bloodline and everything, as I do, Right, and and therefore, you know, depriving me of the possibility of transmitting my wealth to, because my your children are part of you. You see, if they're if they're hurt, it's, it's it's worse than if you're hurt. You see, how come? How can't you give them your money? So you got to think along these lines, and. I've been doing a lot of thinking. I didn't put it fully in a book about what is the definition of a unit. Is a unit you? Is a unit your tribe? Is a unit you and your descendant? Is a unit you and your fellows? Is a unit you and members of the Stanford uh, Club, uh, you know, for economic, uh, insightful economic discussions? What is what is your unit, and 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 your your inability to transmit to 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 transmit some of what you have for your unit because you you feel that that uh, that's you, all right, uh, is is a limitation that that no government should be allowed to make uh, without uh, you know that that without further you know investigation or or, or more uh, deeper thinking about the problem. Well, the other point I want to make is that. We shouldn't just care about how much stuff we have. Obviously, stuff's important, but what we really care about, I think, is is flourishing and using our skills. Yeah, plus another thing I've noticed, all these uh, discussions about inequality don't come from uh, people who are at the bottom of the... The, the, the you know the pyramid they come from uh, people um, professors of uh, economics not you of course but left wing professors of economics who uh, feel they're making a lot of money but they uh, they're envious of the richer and 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 I cited a lot of papers from going all the way from from the ancients to the modern or less modern like Guerre like people are jealous of people around them so they're envious so if you ask uh, someone at the bottom uh, uh, you know what would you like they'd like a better fridge uh, uh, a, a new uh, a new car and, and and that's it but if you ask someone uh, a professor of uh, professor at harvard uh, you know of uh, what something sociology at harvard what they'd like they would like their neighbor to be poor <laughs> you see so this is because it, it is sort of uh, the, the, the gold medal Exactly. The gold medal, exactly. It's, it's, it's the silver model uh, medal who is uh, who hates the gold medal. You see, when uh, so that un- uncharitable so. view of our, some of our 
uh, of my fellow academics, although they're yes. not in the Stanford Club for Insightful Economic Discussions. That's a club I'm definitely going to start. We're going to have T-shirts. I love that. Um, S-C-I-E-D. Um, before we finish, I just want to add one uh, challenge to you, Nassim, which is not uh, – just came to me, which is you know, we're talking about the filtering power of of skin in the game, and yet we do want that restaurant – restaurateur to come back and make the second restaurant better. We do want Bill Belichick to, after his it's failure not, at Cleveland, not to be wiped out. We want him to come back and try again. And then entrepreneur in Silicon Valley who has the three failures, we don't say, oh, you're out of the club. So it's, it's, it is a little more complicated. It is, it is and it's not. In other words, uh, uh, the, the fact is, uh, and the beauty of the idea of skin in the game, is that you should have the same uh, – like when you drive, you have the same risk as you inflict on others. And that was the symmetry of uh, of the architect in Hammurabi's code, is that the, uh, you're, the, the what you inflict on others, you're also inflict it to yourself. You should eat your own so, cooking, which exactly. is why you put so, it. So, yeah. Exactly. So, if so for uh, tail risks, uh, this works effectively. And for medium risk, of course, you survive, but you're, you're, everybody survives. So it's not, you're not inflicting any big danger on others. You see, in the, in the previous discussion on skin in the game, uh, I spoke about people being morally calibrated. And most people, butchers, everybody's morally calibrated, you see. This uh, uh, removing the tail risk, it, preventing people from coming back if they inflict a lot of risk on others. Like, for example, warriors. Every warrior, traditionally, society has, uh, we are where we are today because warriors are in battle. You see, so if you're a complete uh, 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 uncontrollable warmongers like many people in Washington today or some journalists and many think tank people, you would end up dying in battle. And these people don't die in battle. So that's what I meant. The restaurant owner, of course, is going to be filtered or the theme is going to be filtered. Okay, he won't have a bad restaurant. It's something else. But he's not inflicting undue risk on others. He's only inflicting risks on his investors and on himself and eventually you know if he's very bad he'll run out of money which is sufficient punishment he's not executed yeah unless he kills people through food poisoning exactly if he eats his food he'll be he'll he'll be be out you know exactly Um, well let's close with the following we um, can't remember I didn't check what year we did our first interview but it was some while back 2007 2007, and it was about the Black Swan, which is a book yes. I liked. And as I said the last time we talked, I actually like Fooled by Randomness better. It's, it's Fooled by Randomness is, remains one of my all-time favorite books. So you wrote that book a long time ago. I think you said almost 20 years ago. And a set of other books just sort of emerged um, without planning. The Black Swan came next, and then you had um, – I think you had the Bed of Procrustes is a yes, set of aphorisms from your Twitter experience. Then you had Anti-Fragile, uh, and now you've got skin in the game, and you call this entire project – Incerto. Incerto. I want to pronounce it correctly. Uh, and I don't know what Incerto means, by the way. What does Incerto mean? Uncertainty in Latin. Okay. So – you have explored through a set of books and papers and now, our, for me, our conversations, a topic that is inherently unknowable, which is uncertainty, but one can get better understandings of it as you think about it more and more. And my question is, are you done? 
Is this no, the last because, book of this is the last book of Inserto? Is there another book in the works? Uh, are, yeah, you gonna your, are you going to count Are you going to Are you going to go uh, count it, your um, count your royalties, which are quite quite nice? It, it is uncertain. Let me. Is, so the, the 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 subtitle uh, for the Inserto is an investigation of luck, uncertainty, probability, opacity, human error, risk, disorder, and especially decision-making in a world we don't understand. Okay. So it's about, um, so uh, if it's about things we don't understand and how to make decisions, well, visibly the set is going to expand over time and I may write another book. I think I have an idea what I'm going to be writing next, but I'd like to take a break. Writing doesn't bother me. What really bothers me is the book doors. <laughs> when, when you become a marketer rather than yeah. being a, uh, a producer, and I'm not, you know, there's something about marketing that makes me feel uh, like I'm doing something, uh, I'm betraying my work because you're spending time away from your real uh, work. Um, so I don't like book tours uh, or not too much, but I like a conversation with you because as I told you, every time I have a conversation on, on Econ Talk and also Skin in the Game, I've learned from Econ Talk, I, there's a symmetry I need to get back. So, um, the, 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 so, so this is what, what really scares me about writing a book is the packaging of it, not so much sure. the, the composition. But I've been writing papers in the meanwhile, and papers are book tour free. There's no paper tour. Well, I, see, I mean, academics have paper tours, but uh, but I don't have to do it. I just post it and that's it. So I have a great idea for you. I think for your next book, if there is one, you tell your publisher, I'm not going to do any touring. All I'm going to do, the only promotion, will be to make my ninth appearance on Econ Talk. Well, that's which, what I told them. Believe which, it or not, that's what I told them for this book. And then, that yeah. way... Your publisher has an enormous incentive to help promote Econ Talk because your publisher will have skin in the game with me, which I think is just phenomenal. You don't know publishers. This is what I told them. It's actually almost what I told them. I told them I'm going to do a few appearances with friends and that's it. No book tour. And guess what? We put the book on embargo. Now it's uh, embargoed. But th- then they came up with a list of things they want me to, uh, you know, no, I, they want to send me here, there, talk to this journalist. No, you, you know, so, so I'm not really, uh, yeah, I told them no book tour and they still gave me a book tour. Yeah, it's just a diminutive one though. It's a short book tour. Hopefully, keep keep up the good work. My guest, my guest today has been Nassim Nicholas Taleb. Nassim, as always, it's a pleasure. Great, thank you very much. Bye. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.